The root of the problem in the sustainability crisis is a loss of the sacred. Through conversations with scientists, theologians, scholars, thought leaders, and friends of the Spirituality and Sustainability Global Network, Make It Sacred explores the intersectionality of spirituality and sustainability and why this intersection is critical at our existential societal tipping point. Without spiritual grounding, we won't have a commitment or political will to create hope for sustainability. Co-creation always starts with a conversation. And what are we co-creating? A spiritually grounded passion that comes from a sacred understanding of the earth. Hi, my name is Maddie, and I'll be your host as we start these conversations together. Hi everyone, thank you for being here and supporting us with your ears. On today's episode of Make It Sacred, I have the great pleasure of interviewing one of my best friends in the world, a beautiful, compassionate, and wise young woman named Christina First, who is a returned Peace Corps volunteer. She shares her experience with us, the lessons she learned from the people of Malawi as she lived there, and we talk a lot about sustainable development and global sustainable development and what that looks like, as well as a lot of other interesting things like composting toilets, elephant revenge, the list goes on. If you would like to contribute to the SSGN and further educational initiatives like this one, you can click the donate link in the show notes. This will likely be our last episode of the podcast for the foreseeable future. We're going to be focusing on other educational initiatives, but there might be a season two. So if you have any recommendations or suggestions for that, please contact us. All right, without further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Christina. So Christina, can you start by telling us about your cultural backgrounds and upbringing so we can have an idea of where you come from? I was brought up by a military family. We moved around a lot when I was little. So I think I got a taste of different types of the way people live early on moving from Alabama to Alaska to Germany and then to the East Coast, I think, you know, you don't see it all, but you see a few different types of the way people live growing up. So, and everywhere we lived, my mom was really great about getting us involved with where we were. So when we were living in Germany, my mom didn't want to live on base. She wanted to live in a neighborhood. She wanted us to experience the of any place where we were living so that we could kind of get that the whole experience yeah no I think you're kind of short selling that whole story because you have a really cool family I do they're so cool yes they're great I, I'm very lucky and we're definitely close anyway and I think we've my parents fostered a close relationship within 
our family, but moving around made us even closer because we were kind of our only constants through growing up. We didn't have the same friends from kindergarten. We had each other, my siblings and my parents. So what was it like when you were a little kid growing up in Germany? What was your experience of that like? Oh my goodness. Well, I went to German school in fourth grade, which was very, very interesting when you really don't know the language at all. You're kind of thrown in. We took a few lessons before moving there, but then you're completely immersed in German school and yeah, no one spoke English, um, which is to be expected because it's Germany. But I think that I guess I'd never actually put it together before, but that probably really helped when I ended up going into the Peace Corps because that's kind of the same situation. You have to kind of just deal with the uncomfortable nature of it and find ways to work around it, find ways to communicate, and then work really hard to immerse yourself where you are. You can't just go anywhere in the world and expect everyone else to speak English to you. That's not how the world works. I think that it's important no matter where you go to learn a few phrases and at least try. Where did your interest in the natural world and sustainability come from? I think growing up, I always, I feel like a lot of kids, you you love being outside. That's like being a kid is being outside. So just growing up, running around in the woods, digging in the dirt, playing outside until my mom had this whistle that she would use that meant that we had to come home and we could hear it from a mile radius because she has a really loud whistle so that that was her like call for us to come home but we would just be outside running around until we heard that so every single day and then more seriously I think I entered college thinking I was going to do physical therapy and so I was already a bio major but it kind of shifted from life science bio, molecular bio, over to sustainability throughout my college career. I don't know if there was a single moment that caused that shift, but I think just learning more about the way our world works, the impact that we have on the environment, and then how the choices that we make impact that, um, conscious consumerism, and that was really interesting to me. I did my senior, my senior thesis on endocrine disrupting compounds, which at the time wasn't really that talked about, but it's just so fascinating. And now I think a lot of us know that a lot of the things that we put on our bodies and use every day in our house has tons of chemicals that's not regulated by the FDA and have big effects on our endocrine systems. So, and our, and our hormones. So it's just really interesting. And Kind of all of that got me interested in it. I had forgotten that you had done that as your thesis, which is so crazy to think because now, at least for my algorithm, every fourth post or so I see on Instagram is something about (laughs) chemicals or what did you learn when you were doing that study? It's interesting that we introduce these chemicals into our own systems and a lot of these isn't made by the by the general public, it's made by the people who make decisions about what is most profitable usually. So in 1941, that's, I remember the first 
case of um, in World War II, they were using DDT on crops and they ended up finding out that it made eggshells really thin in, in birds like the bird shells were really thin and were affecting, like they were hatching too early because the eggshell wasn't strong enough to withstand the elements. So that was their, the first signal that DDT was affecting these bird shells. Um, but we were using that on our crops and in turn in our food. So um, I think that was the first sign that you can't just use anything you want and expect that to work. But we still do it. And there's a lot of politics at play there. And, you know, everything's so interconnected. I think it's fascinating what a multifaceted approach sustainability is. It, everything is connected, no matter what field you're in, you can tie it back to sustainability. But you could probably say that about a lot of different, different subjects as well. Just our whole world is so connected. Yeah, that's a great way of saying it almost if you're affecting one part of the chain, you can't expect to eliminate one problem without it impacting something else. Mm-hmm. Even like I heard this, someone talking the other day about Lyme's disease mm-hmm. and they were kind of speculating on why it's so prevalent. Cause if you think about it, people have lived in the woods for ever and there was never such an epidemic of it. And the woman was saying, she's actually my doctor. I was like watching an interview of her. And she was saying that a big reason has been because we have killed the predators of the carriers of the ticks. So now in suburban areas where maybe there used to be a lot of foxes, Mm -hmm. they're not around anymore. So there's a larger population of the rodents or animals that carry the ticks without it being held in check, which is just so fascinating because you think like, oh, but there's a million little things like that that we've disrupted. Absolutely. That have some downstream effect. Yeah, that's a great example. But yeah, there's tons of, tons of examples just like that. Yeah. Can you talk about, so you were in the Peace Corps yes. in Malawi for a couple of years. Can you talk about that? I mean, there's a lot you could say about that, obviously. But what was the purpose of your time there? What was your program? What were you doing as a volunteer? I was a natural resource management volunteer. That was my technical title. And that means that my main, my main work was with the local extension planning area or EPA. And we did a lot of projects throughout the community, like starting community and household and optimizing household gardens, making tree nurseries and all volunteers, no matter what sector you're in. So in Malawi, there was health volunteers, education volunteers, and environmental volunteers. So I was environmental, but all, all, all volunteers work with schools to do programs like grassroots soccer, which uses soccer related games to provide information to high school age students about AIDS and HIV. I also did wildlife clubs with elementary school age students and had a girls club and did one-off events like Pad Project, which is a really cool project that everyone sews pads that help keep girls in school when they're on their period. And those were always super fun because we would have a mix. So it would be half boys and half girls. And it was really cool to see the reactions 
that were so positive coming from the boys. They'd say, I'm going to give this to my sister. I'm going to give this to my girlfriend. They were excited to make the pads too. Those are, those are really fun. So if the girls didn't have those, would they not go to school? A lot of times girls didn't go to school on their periods. And that was, it wasn't because of pain or not feeling well. It was because they didn't have a way to be sanitary and contain the blood. Yes. Wow. That's so, that's crazy to think about. Yeah. Because like in the West, we have obviously such a different access to resources. And that's not even something that an American girl would have to think about. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. What was it like to live in Malawi? Like, what were your living conditions like? What did a day look like for you? Can you kind of paint that for us? No, Malawi is a beautiful country. I, it's stunningly green. It has beautiful wildlife and plant life and natural natural features has beautiful waterfalls and it's it's beautiful it's a beautiful country i lived in a place called mtubwi which is close to one of the biggest national parks in malai luande national park it was really hot in my region not the hottest in malawi but it was really hot and i lived in what i call a big brick oven because <laughs> I lived in a brick house and the house and the roof was made of tin. So the heat would get conducted because tin is a great metal is a conductor of heat. So the heat would get conducted into my house and then it would be insulated from the brick. So the heat would just sit in my house and made it really hot. So during hot season, a lot of people would sleep on the ground on the concrete floor in my area with the doors open and stuff. And, but they told me since I lived alone, don't sleep with your door open because I lived close to a hill that had hyenas. And they said sometimes they'd come in the village. So they're like, you you don't sleep with your door open. Make sure you lock it. And yeah, so I would like use wet blankets, but yeah, it was it was hot a lot of the night. What was the temperature? It would get up to like max. I, I think it got up to like 115 in the hot season but it was also really hot at night. So I think that's like, really, it's hot, <laughs> but beautiful. I, I had a great community. And as far as a day-to-day -day routine, it was really different depending on what I was working on at the time. So a lot of, like I said, a lot of the times I would be working at a school doing, during, doing different programs. I worked with a lot of women's groups doing business ventures because my community loved that and they were really ready for that and were interested in that and motivated to do that so yeah they they love they love doing stuff like that but yeah usually if I had a busy day I would wake up pretty early because I you have to pump your own water so I would go to the well before the lines get really long life is slow in Malawi and I think it just, it takes longer to do normal day-to-day -day things because if you want to make breakfast, you have to, you know, make a fire and then, you know, like do make some eggs or whatever you, whatever you'd normally do 
and you have to like get your water to shower and get ready for the day. So it just, everything just kind of takes a little bit longer there, but yeah. And people love to talk, like, especially the women, you can just like, anytime I wanted interaction, I could go next door. They would sit and talk for hours, like that they just chat and interact. That's like their whole, how they spend a lot of their time. So if I didn't, have time to chat I would try and go to the to the water early before it got really crowded and everyone you know you have to wait in line to get your water so it can take in drier seasons when it, the water is running slower and there's fewer wells and more people are coming to ours um, it could take like an hour just to get just to wait in line for you to pump your water so sometimes I would get it really early and go get it before the line got too long but yeah and then depending on the day I would yeah, just have different groups, like I mentioned. Did the people where you were living speak English or did you learn the local language? So before going to your village, before you get assigned to your village, you have three months of training, which includes extensive language training every day and uh, your technical training. So we got taught about composting and permagardening and what else a ton of a ton of stuff we would we would just we would have a lot of training before going to our village so we had three months of that and then you're kind of immersed you know the basics and you're in your village so a big part of why you went in the whole sustainability aspect of it is obviously you're trying to equip people to have this knowledge for when you're not there anymore so what did, what did your relationships, and you also had a counterpart. Yes. So can you tell us, well, first tell us what a counterpart is and tell us about yours. Was it Billy? Is that his name? I, I had a few counterparts. So okay. when you go to your village, you're assigned a counterpart. So Peace Corps makes sure that there's someone in your village that will help support your projects. And so I had my neighbor, Chrissy, Chipoka, she's amazing, um, was my first counterpart. And she's the counterpart who was assigned to me. She's so incredibly strong. And she was a little bit older, but she worked for the EPA. And she has three grown sons, but she also was raising a nine-year-old when I was there because her sister passed away. So she took her child. And yeah, she's amazing really busy. Um, so I, I worked with her and she helped introduce me to all these groups, but then you kind of meet your own counterparts. Like at each school, I would have a counterpart for my different groups. And I had Billy who was in a village about 45 minutes by bike from me, who is just such a special person. Person, Yes, he was one of, one of the many counterparts that I worked with. What kind of work were you doing with Billy? Billy and I worked on a number of different things throughout my time there. Billy was so special because I think a lot of times when you when you go into these communities, people make assumptions about you and what you can do for them. Billy never never wanted anything from me, which was so refreshing. And like he just wanted to talk to me and 
work like think about big ideas and tell me about what he's doing and he became my mentor which is really amazing like he was he's definitely been a mentor to me he taught me about astronomy he would he this a self-made man from a village in the north came from nothing and ended up building this lodge so he was he's a lodge owner and wanted to find more ways that he can give back to the community so he would help me teach classes on business. We started a beekeeping group co-op with the, the Namanolo, which was the community that he was in, which was really cool. That's it's to one of the one of the biggest projects that I did while I was there. He also helped me since he had a lodge and a boat, and he would do safaris at Lalande National Park. So we, he helped me put together a big field trip for my wildlife club to come learn how to make eco bricks. And they got to go on a safari, which was another one of the most special moments of my Peace Corps career. Um, he helped make that happen. And he just was always wanting to find ways to give back, to teach, to, you know, he was just so excited about life. And yeah, I definitely one of, one of, the best people that I know. I might be remembering this incorrectly, but wasn't there a really incredible story about elephants that he told you? Yeah. So he living, he lived right on the border of the park. So his property line was the fence that was the national park fence. So he had a little viewing area and you could just sit there in dry season when all of the animals would come to the river. So the river was his other property line. It went all the way to the river. And you could just sit there in the, like the hottest season when there wasn't much water and all the animals had to go to the river for water. And you could just watch monkeys and elephants. Like the first time that I went there, there were elephants there and he, he let, he let the people from the local community, they can come watch the animals anytime they want. Yeah. But he started a museum on his property that has bones from different animals that he would find. So when he first got his property, he found a lot of bones just on, in the ground, but he ended up getting bones from the elephant, an elephant that the park rangers had to put down for some reason. And they let him have the bones from the elephant. And in Malawi, er, in the animal kingdom, it's always a female elephant who's the leader of the pack. And, uh, and elephants are so smart. So they, he hears these like crushing sounds in the middle of the night. And this other elephant had come into his property to the museum and he was taking the bones and crushing them of his elephant leader. Yeah, I don't know the reason behind that, but he was, he was saying that it was like a form of respect. We got really close to elephants a number of times. I took some of my friends there, my little friends from, I was friends with a lot of the kids in my village. So I took two of the girls. They helped me teach a hand-washing, like a sanitary hand-washing thing there, which was fun that they got to help teach it with me. And an elephant was there when they were there and it was really close. So that was cool for them. They were, they were terrified. It was so funny. But it's interesting because a lot of the kids in my village have never seen hippos before. But if you go into town, which is three miles from them, there are hippos everywhere in the river. Like when you're crossing the bridge, you can see hippos. And they've never seen them before, which is so interesting and so cool that we were able to do that, that wildlife club trip. 
Yeah. I know something I've heard you say before many times is that you went there with to help and with something to teach, but you ended up learning more from the people. Can you share some of those things? I know you just spoke about Billy a lot, but can you share some of those important lessons that you learned from the people that you met in Malawi? Yeah, definitely. Going there, I think one of the reasons is definitely that you want to help, but I think there's a lot of other reasons for going and doing something like this. You can think about, I wanted to get out. I wanted to see the world. I wanted to experience something great. I wanted to chase adventure and, you know, think about how this could help me later on in life. So I did want to go and have as much of an impact as I could, but I, there's a lot of other reasons for going too. But you do, I think most people in Peace Corps would probably tell you that they, you get a lot more than you give. And that's definitely true for me. You learn about what's important what you need and definitely what you don't need when you go and you wear one pair of shoes for two years you know you don't need much at all and you spend a lot of time in community when and I think a lot of times now especially in COVID and post-COVID you spend a lot of time I spend a lot of time like have spent a lot of time on my phone or doing things that aren't community focused. So yeah, I think, that, but you learn just, you, you learn a lot from the people there, from both the people in your community and your Peace Corps friends who are there doing it with you and are some of the most important relationships that you'll have in your in your life because it's such a specific experience so having other people that understand the the things that you've experienced because they experience them too is something that is super important they're all incredibly intelligent and hardworking and perseverant so I think just being able to talk to other volunteers and seeing um, best practices and bouncing ideas off of things and talking to them when things are feeling like hard in your village. That's also, they're very important. You have to have those Peace Corps relationships too. You learn a lot from both sides of people in your village, people you work with and other volunteers. Yeah. I remember you saying before, that you met a man there in your village who, like you're here teaching sustainability, but you met a man there in your village who had had a composting toilet for like decades. Yes, it was so funny because I, Billy and I were talking about compost toilets. We were looking at different designs. He was thinking about putting some in his lodge and we were talking about like what else we could be doing with them. Because in Malawi, they they're called chimbuzis and they dig just a really, really deep hole. And then you put this little brick structure around it and that's your toilet. It's like a hole in in the ground that's designated for it. But with all of the gases that it gives off, sometimes they can implode and people can fall in. And that's like one way you can, there have been fatalities. So composting toilets are 
really cool. And some lodges in Malawi have had them. And every time you see them, you're like, these are so cool, these composting toilets. But I went to a village with one of my, uh, an expat friend in Balaka, and she introduced me to this man who was 97 years old, which was interesting in itself because a lot of people in Malawi, especially the older population, they don't know how old they are. They don't know their birthday or anything like that. But this man was 97 and he had a composting toilet, which is just, it's just kind of a funny full circle thing where you're like, you just think that, you know, people already had these tools and maybe they didn't know. It's, it, it's just funny. Yeah. Like he, he didn't know that it was such a cool thing, right? but he just right. had yeah. intuitively had figured out that this was yeah. a better way to build a toilet. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know if it was something that they used to do and now, and now they do it a different way or if it was more widespread and then somehow people decided digging a really deep hole was better, but yeah, it's just funny. Now we're move, trying to get people to move back to the composting. What are some things that you took home with you or simple pieces of advice that you could give for a typical person in the West that they could make their lives more sustainable? Like lessons that you learned in Malawi or things that you taught there? Well, or even things that you practice like in your normal life. Yeah, some things that are, I don't know how applicable some of the things are, but I'll just name a few. I think one of them is just, you don't need it. We're really driven by money here. Companies are trying to make money. They're advertising different things to us all the time and you don't need any of it. I think that's something that's important to think about for me when I see things like that. And, you know, they make it so specific. They target the way that your brain works to make you want things. And I think the first thing when I see ads that kind of trigger that want is to immediately say, you don't need it and then kind of go from there. But I think that's definitely something you take away. As far as like composting and stuff goes, if, if you're able to do things like that, I think one, one positive thing living in a, a society that promotes innovation that there's lots of people that care and are working towards different types of solutions. I saw this trash can that you can keep in your kitchen, that you can put your food waste in the top part of it and the bottom part is just a regular trash can, but the, it converts your compost into dirt. So you don't, you know, if you live in a city and you can't, you know, have a compost pile in your backyard, it does it for you in the, in the trash can, which is a really cool invention. But yeah, I think that that's cool. Just finding ways to integrate sustainability into your, into your life. Yeah, that's a really good point of saying, I don't need that. I need to do that personally. Because I notice when I think like on times of my life where I was really happy and my head was in a good place, those are the times where I spent drastically less money. And then when I think of times in my life where maybe I was struggling with something, I spend way more money. And it's kind of a symptom of looking for maybe comfort or certainty mm-hmm. in objects, Definitely. which obviously like 
that's not where you find comfort and certainty, but on in a short-term basis of literal neurochemistry, <laughs> you do feel it when you buy something. Yeah. I think one of my favorite verses that always, that I think about all the time, it's one of my favorite of all time. And it's been my favorite, even from when I was little is where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. And it's just kind of like, it follows the law of attraction. Like what you think about is what you think about. What you think about is what, and what you spend your time coveting, what you spend your time wanting in life. That's what you think about. Yeah. It kind it makes sense, but I think it's goes deeper too. Yeah, totally. Can you speak to that? Is there sort of a personal spiritual dimension to your heart for sustainability and the reason that you went into the Peace Corps or even just in your life? Well, it definitely helps to, like, spirituality is one contributing factor, as I mentioned. Like, there's lots of different reasons for doing something, but it always helps to stay centered and grounded and connect with inner wisdom, intuition, cultivate a, cultivating a sense of purpose and meaning one of the most important spiritual practices for me is love and compassion i think love is the most powerful force and it has the power to transform our lives and the world around us so yeah i think it's always important to incorporate kindness and compassion wherever you can to whomever you're interacting with. From a Christian perspective, I, I mean, I draw, I draw from, from the life of Jesus, who was a great example of love and action. I think that's the, that's a component as well. I can, I have been telling people this story recently, I guess, because it just came to my mind, but like as an example of what a good friend you are, <sighs> And I remember one time in college when I had lice and you can see my hair is very long. I have a lot of hair and you would pick the lice out of my hair at night for me, which to me, it's like, I don't know if I would do that for you, <laughs> but you are a very compassionate person. Very much. So I admire you for that. What is something, this is something I ask everyone on the podcast. What is something that gives you hope? seeing people stand up for things that they're passionate about I think is something that gives me hope and something that I think I get like kind of something practical too that you mentioned earlier something you can take home learning learning what's in your control and what's out of your control like there's so much that feels out of control and there's so much in general out there but if you can narrow it down, like, I like how Glennon Doyle says that you should find something that lights your soul on fire. I think that gives me hope to see people, whether that's like, as it relates to sustainability, for example, like, whether that's the fact that 85% of textiles end up in the landfill or that 50% of food in the US goes to waste, whatever, sets your full soul on fire for that. So let's take food waste, for example. If you start looking at, maybe you start by looking at your own consumption and finding ways to reduce your own waste or use it as compost. And then from there, you can find ways to 
look for ways to support local organizations or food address food waste in your community and kind of get larger and you know maybe eventually advocate for policy changes so I think when people find what they're passionate about learn everything there is to know about it and then fix what you can in your own life and kind of spread that larger I think that gives me a lot of hope because there's a lot of people doing that so yeah that's and it's always great to see someone doing something that they were made to do you know, they have that fire for it. Why do you believe that a focus on building sustainable global communities is important? Well, in an ideal world, every individual would have access to the education and resources they need to succeed. But obviously, that's not the case. And we live in a world that in which so many people are held back by poverty and lack of access to education and healthcare and environmental degradation that we're all contributing to. So recently, a recent example, my, my counter, one of my counterparts, Austin, who I keep in contact with in Malawi, was telling me about Hurricane Freddie that hit my, my village where I was living and it killed a lot of people and Austin's house was completely wiped out by it. Luckily he wasn't in his house at the time, but it was completely grounded. A lot of people's belongings and houses are destroyed. And I think that hearing that made me think about, obviously it's horrible anytime you hear something like that, but it forces, it forced me to recognize again, how interconnected we all are and that the well-being of one community or region is tied to the well-being of others. And so, for example, like maybe a choice that I made here to buy something or support a multinational corporation that emits a lot of CO2 into the atmosphere affected climate change and made Hurricane Freddie more severe than it would have been. And had an impact over there. Like we're all contributing, we're all interconnected, like I talked about earlier. And yeah, so I think that the challenges are interconnected and require collaborative global effort to overcome them. Yeah, I love that. You're so good at articulating all of this stuff. It's really cool to hear you talk about, to learn Always from you. one of my favorite people to talk to, so I'm glad I got <laughs>